0: It's time to Accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to Episode 496 of Accelerate, where I hold in-depth conversations with today's leading experts in sales, marketing, and leadership six days a week. Now, if you like the show, take a second, subscribe, leave a review for us. You can do that all with the podcast app on your phone that you're using to listen to this podcast. So go ahead and do that right now and come right back. Joining me on the show all the way from New Zealand today is Harry Mills. Harry's the author of a new book called Zero Resistance, The Science and Secrets of Supercharging Your Sales by Eliminating Buyer Skepticism and Mistrust. And In this interesting book, he lays out the case for why the conventional tell-and-sell sales model, which most salespeople use, is really becoming obsolete and how it's going to be replaced by what he calls the self-persuasion model. It's definitely an interesting perspective on the future of selling that I'm anxious to explore with them. So let's jump right into it. Harry Mills, welcome to Accelerate. Good morning. Good morning. What's well, good morning where you are. It's it's evening where I am. So you're joining us uh, all the way from what you said, Queenstown, New Zealand.
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, the nearest thing to paradise in some ways. <laughs> it's a, one of the most beautiful areas in the world.
0: And describe it to us. I mean, is it you're on the South Island?
1: Well, I'm in the South Island. Um, it's become a safe destiny. It's um, full of ice and snow um, normally, and it's carved out these magnificent lakes and picturesque functions. And um, and until recently, really, it was there were lots of Americans in here because they would fly in here from the United States, a long trip, but they would b- build these beautiful houses on the most magnificent imaginable views. The marvellous thing about um, Queenstown too, um, if you compare it to the United States, I mean really Queenstown is uh, New Zealand's Grand Canyon, but it couldn't be more different physically. But the big difference between the Grand Canyon and Queenstown is that within half an hour's drive of Queenstown, you have a whole range of just as exhilarating sort of adventure spots. You can go skydiving or you can go canoeing or you can go down rapids. You can do all sorts of things. So people love it.
0: And is that is there uh, wine cultivation in that area as well?
1: Oh, it is. I mean, it's actually all of a sudden become one of the leading Pinot Noir producing areas in the world. So you just go over the hill from Queenstown and you go to one of the finest Pinot Noir Growing um, areas of New Zealand, or if you want to, you can actually stay in Queenstown. You can do a magnificent bungee jump at the home where bungee jumps were invented. (laughs) Have you done that? uh, Yeah, I I haven't because I have a crook back, but all my family has, and um, and it's almost an act of ritual now, and you know, rite of ritual for um, New Zealanders, as for as for every tourist who comes into here as well, and um, and then basically you can get out of the. Be unbuckled literally from the harness, and you can walk across the road, and you're near one of the finest vineyards and and um, the Pinot Noir world. So you huh. can uh, you can get your highs whatever way you want.
0: Yeah, I think I'll take mine with wine. <laughs> <I> <laughs> you, certainly can, you, do. <laughs> you can keep the, you can keep the bungee jumping. I'll 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 come I'll come for the high the, for the wine. So, well, Harry I th- again, thanks for joining in, and so. Question I open up with a lot of my guests in, and, and you've written a book we're going to talk about called Zero Resistance and a sales book. And so, in your mind, what's the single biggest challenge that sales professionals are facing today?
1: The single biggest challenge, in one word, is resistance. People are pushing back. I mean, the, the, I think it was in 2010, I noticed a remarkable figure that Shoppers, when they were using their cell phones, had gone from searching five times for a particular thing, they'd gone to Amazon and other sources, to 10 times in one year. And all of a sudden I went, wow, I have never seen anything like an uptake in technology which would actually have a huge influence on people's behaviour because what that did is that proved that the customer now, it was all powerful. They had access to all the information and all the choices they felt they needed to make a good buying decision. Now, just multiply that across millions of people, whether they're buyers and um, business to business or whether they're walking down Broadway shopping for a new pair of shoes. They feel they're confident. They feel they can make decisions. They don't need the help of a salesperson in many cases.
0: Now, do, you that, do you find that even do you find that as much the case with b2b as I mean certainly b2c were you know aware of that phenomenon you know spurred in large part as you mentioned by amazon and and others but do you find that being the case as well in b2b
1: yes because in some ways um you see I've done a lot of books on negotiation so we um buyers b2b buyers have been very conscious of how to get better deals by you know bringing consultants and and um, not being swayed, say, if you like, by the biases of the salesperson and everything else. So a lot of the structures if you like for negotiating hard were there and, and there's a parallel behaviour happening in the B2B market as well larger businesses have been getting bigger. So what that's actually meant is that there are more decision makers more influencers or stakeholders in organisations. So it's even become more imperative um, in a B two B environment, for a salesperson to get in earlier, if, if they're going to have shape the the criteria in a sale. Mm. So, but the technology is saying to the buyer, we don't need um, the the help of the um, seller. And in fact, you can even buy a jet engine on YouTube. You can actually sit there and watch it and look at a lot of the technology and everything else and so what companies are doing is they're making this process easier because they're putting more and more of their information on the likes of YouTube and making it easy easier to make a buying decision without a buyer without a seller rather
0: well and you think that in your experience you think that's the case for b2b as well because I mean I see actually maybe a, an opposite phenomenon somewhat in in sort of complex b two b products like jet engines and so on is is that that in some degree the customer is relying more on the seller to become you know more of a collaborator more of a you know consultative consultative type seller uh than they were necessarily in the past
1: well, I think there's two types there i mean where the b two b relationship um is relatively simple, and you've used the magic word called complex seller, but it's a question where they engage. Quite often, they're not engaging until much later in the process when they um, want to do. So the other thing is, sellers in all environments are finding it much harder to get engagement, to get in early, to build once the whole formula was to build the relationship, and then you get a chance to talk about their needs. Um, you still need customers don't do that um anymore. I mean, even um you know b big b two b sales, complex sales, um, the average b two b seller is not getting into about sixty two percent or even more through the sales process. So what I think it's done, regardless of whether there is a deep relationship and where you need to actively consult, um, it's changed the nature of the way you engage. I mean, customers are more influential, they're more informed. Um, you can't assume as a seller that the customer doesn't know much. They've normally done their homework much better. Quite a, It's easy to have access to independent third parties. All of those things have increased the power of the buyer. So basically what they're saying you. You come to me on my terms. And and basically the traditional way of selling has been what I would call direct persuasion. And direct persuasion is if I can get a meeting, I'll use my charm and my influence. And therefore, what I'll try to do is I will try to demonstrate with my information, my insights, why you should talk to me now. Let's take the, the notion of turning up with an insight backed up by reasons. I mean, that should produce an aha, and in many cases, it does. And that's become you know the driving force between the new movement of insight led selling. But if the customer's pushing back, and if the customer and most customers don't really want to change radically, most of us are conservative buyers, we're skeptical, we're almost cynical in some cases, because the industry we, we live in ha- has exaggerated so much. So you've got so to... As a,
0: as a result of, of being subjected to so many, as you said, exaggerated messages, then, yeah, people are buyers are more skeptical, more resistant to you know being pitched, if but, you will.
1: Yeah, and I mean, even the thing, I mean, if we've talked about consultative selling and relationship-generated selling, but basically all the research shows that people have become very cynical because they feel, instead of a, a seller having using an open-ended conversation to take them down to pursue a list of possibilities, what they're doing is they're seducing them and guiding them down a pretty well-guided path of discovery, in which, and they say, and I've got that. And so you've been led to their product. And so what sellers haven't realized there are two ways basically of influencing someone there is a way which is called direct persuasion and even if it's packaged as consultative selling it's essentially about using your reasons to influence the customer now the environment's changed that the customer pushes back and if there's any real friction or push in the relationship it even becomes harder to deliver some form of provocative or new cutting-edge insult because you're getting resistance. But what they don't know, there's a much better way to sell, and it's been there for a long time, and it's been called self-persuasion. And self-persuasion is when people persuade themselves. But as a seller, what you do is you help them find their own reasons for wanting to buy. Now, what you're doing is when you help people find their own reasons, for wanting to buy it. there's no resistance. And the and 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 the reason is very simple. We don't argue with our own reasons.
0: Sure. That's the principle of consistency that, that's been laid out several times by social psychologists and so on. Yeah, people have this inherent need to be consistent with their own beliefs.
1: What I wrote in two thousand, I wrote a book and I subsequently became the Haver harvard management to on influence, and I did a lot on self persuasion. And I expected the, the sales world to rush in and take up self-persuasion and incorporate it and transform all of their ways of selling, but they didn't. And about three years ago, while well, I suddenly before realized... You,
0: before you go on, so why, why is that the case? Why do you think they haven't adopted it?
1: Well, that was a question that I asked. And, and then I realized there was no self-persuasion had all the research had been done on individual pieces of persuasion. Whereas... For 100 years and more than 100 years now, um, direct persuasion has had a whole variety of processes which have been refined and processed. So anybody who goes to a sales course knows that you start with a sales process which which starts with something like establish rapport, uncover needs, et cetera, et cetera, through to close the the sale. Mm -hmm. And nobody had actually developed a self-persuasion process. And so what I think was happening, people would think this is a good idea, but how do I implement it? How do I train people? So that was the first thing. The second thing was that nobody had actually developed a set of tools. No process, no tools. It was like CRM before the computer. It was like accounting before spreadsheets. Someone had to invent the spreadsheet to make it easier to put the numbers in. And so, so what I realize suddenly if there was going to be someone who was going to put it together because i've been working in the area for nearly 20 years it had to be me and and so hence zero resistance and so zero resistance is really just a set of tools and methods which allow you to build to use the old language to build an empathy bridge at the end and and to close with a with a statement which gives the customer called um, it's your choice. Um, closes the sale more successfully, and once people see the process and once they understand the process, and because they intuitively relate to it, because they hate being told what to do to themselves.
0: Hmm. So well, once so, they practice. Well, let's say. Well, let's dig into that a little bit. So, so you're talking about the process, and you gave an example of what uh, what you leave on the book, the tell and sell, you know, conventional sales model does for first interaction with a customer in zero resistance and the self-persuasion model. So let's start at the beginning. So what, what is the first interaction, what what is the goal of the first interaction in uh self-persuasion sales model?
1: You see, let's let's go back to the old one. For example, we've known it's we we've let's call it the old one called build rapport. We've known that the basis of a relationship is to get on well and build trust. Okay so how do you build trust what we found is the traditional way of you know um smiling and and the routines associated with body language presentation yes they're good yes um they don't necessarily generate too much resistance but what they don't do is generate deep trust and what what you have to look at is how do you get people to convince themselves, because this is what self-persuasion, to trust you quickly. Now, that's the goal of of virtually every sales uh, process, right? Now, the process of me coming up with a tool called Build an Empathy Bridge was actually inspired by a very gifted persuader called Nelson Mandela. Because when Mandela was on Robben Island for 27 years, he turned from being a hard-nosed terrorist to almost a 360-degree turnaround, and he he came to realise that the only way, the only way that he would convince the Afrikaners to change and to hand him and his people ultimate authority through the democratic process was to help the Afrikaners destroy apartheid themselves. In other words, he had to convince the Africana that it was in their interest to actually hand over power. Now, mm-hmm. that's an extraordinary thing to do inside a prison.
0: Sure, absolutely.
1: And and what Mandela did was he worked it out. He used a lot of the things that we would be common. In fact, I I have an acronym for Mandela's conversation called SOFTEN. Right? And I'll quickly go through because listeners will relate to The first thing, he he would greet you with an absolutely um, warm smile. So people didn't expect a, a terrorist to sort of be so friendly and have a an smile, right? He was a tall man and he had a gregarious posture and he was very open and, and respectful. He, even when he met his lawyer for the first time, um, he would introduce his guard as his honour guard, and introduces, you know, guards mm-hmm. by first name. So he had this ability to just create, he had a sort of almost a magnetic pace, so he would smile open posture. Now here, the F in the soften is the magic thing. What he realised is the first thing you've got to do is eliminate difference and eliminate friction. Let me just depart once. I Think of self-persuasion as the oil in a car. What the oil does is eliminate the friction, and if you don't have, if you don't eliminate the friction, you've always got pushback. Now, what Mandela realised the problem was, is he had to create the F as a fused identity. He had to help the Africana discover that they had a common set of experiences, a common history, and a common set of interests. So, the first thing that he would do under this fused identity, he would, he'd done research, he'd done massive amounts of research on, on how Afrikaners understood their past. And he'd say, you know, we have a common history. We are both people of the land. We are both Africans. Now, he did that while speaking Afrikaans. Now, you just imagine, you know, the head of the prison service in South Africa, being greeted in Afrikaans, if you hear someone greet you in Afrikaans, you think, well, they don't want to destroy us if they're bothering to, t- 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 to learn our language for a start. They've got something in mind. And the second thing is, when they take away that one of the major areas or obstacles, because most Afrikaners thought they were going to be booted out of Africa and sent back to Holland or Portugal, where they had come many hundreds of years before. So basically what he did was build this commonality. He 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 took what were uncommon commonalities and he created fused identity. And what he did was lower resistance massively. He created receptivity. And if to go on to the thing so you got the smile the open posture the fused identity um and well, so the, yeah.
0: So what I'd like you to do is, is so break that down. Let's say for you know someone selling you know a piece of software, you know, so a SaaS company. Uh, you know, the uh, sales development rep is is making their initial contact with this prospect. Maybe somebody that to generate a lead sent it in. So what's that translate to when this the rep which... is having this first this first conversation in terms of how it's different than what they're doing today?
1: Well, what I would. Well, what they don't do is they don't actually spend enough time in researching the client for a start. They're they thinking, and particularly in the areas you're talking about, they'll lead in with the product. They don't actually find out. They don't have a really good understanding of their customers' deepest fears and concerns and what are the underpinning things as well. The second thing is they don't do enough homework on you know relationships and things that they've got in common with people and Background and everything else, so that they, they don't actually create any fuse. So, um, people just see the person as a salesperson, as a, a product promoter, and 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 basically every survey basically shows up very low, low rates on empathy, which is even the first step of, of knowing. I mean, um, you've got to find out what you've got in common with the salesperson, you um, with the buyer, rather, you've got to find. Find some deep connection. You've got to find out um, that their concerns have been your concerns, right? And 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 basically, with salespeople don't come close to doing it at the moment.
0: Well, so they need to do it in a way that that's very authentic to them. So, what's your what's your advice for a salesperson? Is is you know perhaps they're insufficiently passionate about what they sell or? You know what's what's the key for a salesperson? To, you know, develop that that well, uh, uh, that empathy as you're talking about. That's really based on as you said commonality of interest, which again I, I say it sort of has to do with sort of a belief and a passion in what they're selling.
1: Well, there's, there's two things. The first is building the empathy bridge, right? And, and and basically it means doing a lot of homework on the client. So I mean. What what you've got to do is you've got to find out who they are, where they've come from, what their history is. Um, you do, we do have um, quite good tools with LinkedIn to be able to do quite a bit of that. We've got to dig behind the LinkedIn. We've got to go around the place and find out who's got a personal interest. You've got to find out what their interests are in their sports. And and you're not just doing that as the only thing at the beginning. The first thing, you've, if you like, to soften is the fused identity. And then you need the ability to use a second self-persuasion tool, which, which is story. So, so basically using some sort of story which which has got some sort of insight about their business. And, and then you can use um, a character in that story who's gone through a similar set of experiences, someone who the customer will actually identify with, and You've effectively created a, quite a deep rapport, and if you and and in two or three meetings, you can actually get to the stage where you will be that that trusted partner.
0: Well, one of the one of the tough things that in many of the sales models that we're seeing today, especially inside sales model, is that you don't have two or three meetings. You've got one right to to establish you know some some form of rapport. Sufficient enough for the customer to say, "Yeah, I'm willing to invest some more time in you, in order to take that next step and have that next conversation." So, for people listening to this, and we have a lot of you know sales development reps, inside sales sellers that, inside sellers that that you know this first call is all important. What's your advice for them?
1: Well, the t- the two sides are there. I mean, what we're saying is that if you change the the way you do the first call. I mean, something like two, I I think uh, Forrester surveys, and I quote this in the book as well. I think that basically, um, salespeople who get in early are about two to three times more successful than people who get in late, right, for a start. And that's because they get to frame the thing. The second thing is um, we're working on a wrong premise. What we're actually describing is is an environment where we're saying we're only going to get one meeting. So we've got to get in, and what we're doing is even if we've got an insight, we're pitching that insight. I mean, even the um, you know, the the proponents and the arguably the embedders of insight selling Laken was saying, you know, you've got to be provocative. You know, you've got to use that's why it's called the challenge a sale one mm. of them, all, right? You've got to challenge them, right? Um what what I'm saying is and when you go out and, and, and people who use it, they will tell you that they get pushback. What you've got to do is basically almost slow down to some extent. And you've got to say, well, what what, of what someone looking at the first time they meet me? The human being is wired to say, are you a friend or a foe? And a, and a salesperson says, if you're a friend, you're here with, with my long-term interests in mind, right? So that's mm-hmm. what I mean by a friend. The second thing I'm looking is, can you deliver? So there's two things to that thing. Can I trust you that that you have my interest in now? And you're, basically, you're just not flogging what you want, right? Mm-hmm. So you're here for me as much as you are for the thing. So you truly win one. The second thing is, can you really deliver? So right. that those two things have got to be the components. But you're much better in having a framework which sets out why you work and the sort of thing. And what people are doing at the moment is they – know that if they don't make this instant first impression and they tend to push. The, in fact, we, what you're describing, Anne, is exactly what they're doing, is as we run out of time, we push almost instinctively. You say, well, I've only got five minutes, therefore I have to do a speech. And, and and the whole process has got like this. You know, when you set up the appointment, someone will say, well, don't ask for an hour now, just ask for 40 minutes. And then other people will say, ask for half an hour, Right. And and so basically you then, what salespeople are doing at the moment is in this new pressurised environment where they think they've only got one meeting, what we're showing time and time again is if the client says after this half or three quarters of an hour that they feel you're there to help, you know, you go back to the big complex sale. If they feel you're there to help, that you have actually got something that would be of real benefit. So partially a story about how you've helped someone similar is going to be there. And if they think you can deliver, so you've got to have some brief way of, you know, um, cutting through the whole thing, because everybody, if you're talking about software, everybody talks about the cloud. So the, the other part of this, and, and a large part of the book's about, is what I call the 3Ds. You've got to, in that initial conversation, as well as use the soften thing, you've got to be different, but you've got to be different in those areas which the client finds desirable. And that goes back to doing a lot of homework on what the customer is. Not just being different, we're another leading company. And, and, and the third D of the three, de- deliverable, um, is a deliverable. Here, here's our track record. This is what um, clients have said, right? So you've got to, If you can weave that into a story, and and so you you've only got. I mean, I think you can you can win. T- you need to influence a customer to say, well, I need sixty to ninety minutes. And you you know, with the material you send through to the client, you convince them that this is a conversation that's worth listening to. That it's a two way conversation, and. um in the book, I actually say that you actually you say that this is not us telling you how our product will help you. This is about us working with you with the product, so we then can come up with a customized solution.
0: Yeah, I mean, right? Because you know, one of the the key tenets of self persuasion is, and has been, I mean, even in advance of of I, mean, I like the term, but. Is yeah, if you get the customer to participate and collaborate in the development of the solution, right? If you really are collaborative with them, if even something as simple as like Dan Rome points, points out in his book uh, "Draw to Win" is you know, if you get the customer up to the whiteboard, you know, flowcharting out what they want the system to do, yeah, they have a you know an, an ownership stake in it from a mental standpoint.
1: You see, and and you, and, you, and and that's what Dan Rome's finding in the illustration. I do exactly the same thing. I, I use a lot of, um, and you'll notice in the book there are sort of whiteboard type illustrations, cave drawings. I call them right.
0: <laughs> they're they're better than cave drawings, but yeah, they're they're good. They're, no, no, they're you know what I
1: mean. And I mean, in fact, that's a perfect example of exactly what we're talking about, right? Quite often we'll have a conversation, and I'm sitting there, or are we training people to do it? And and we, and we've got, you know, um, some form of sketch pad in front of us, right? And mm-hmm. what what if we try and do is is capture the process, right? Now, and you draw something, and most of us, when we draw something, we'll draw it out ourselves, right? Now, the marvellous thing of what I call a cave drawing is that it, it distills the conversation down to its essence. But um, most of your um, listeners will be probably understand the S-curve, which has been used by Salespeople people for years and years and consultants, right? Now, we can draw an S-curve and we can say, where as a company do you sit on the S-curve and are you about to jump off the S-curve so you're going to need to change and all that? But what Dan Rome's saying is that if you start an S-curve illustration and you should hand the whiteboard pen over to the client and say, now, where does your company sit on the S-curve? Mm-hmm and they will put a dot on the S-curve, right? And then you'll say, and and basically what you'll do is you have this interactive discussion with them. And you see, one of the good examples, I, I have a, um, a, a toolkit which I call um, Talk. Right. And then maybe this n- next questioning tool illustrates the fundamental difference. Most of us know we have to find a customer pain point, right? Right. Call that the problem question, right? Well, we learned from years ago with things like um, spin selling, we should sit on the problem and explore it in depth. We called those effect questions, right? Well, like Neil Rackham. Right. Better, right? Now, the, the old thing with spin, when you went to the need, where you delivered the answer. That was called the need. Right? You delivered Mm -hmm. the answer. Right? right? So that was the need. A need question, which says, hey, I've got this. Now, what you go back to what you talked about earlier, Andy, is you go back and say, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to open this conversation and and I'm using my skills to guide the discussion, and we've been talking to a client. We're going to explore possibilities. Now, let's imagine, right, if I say to a client, instead of saying, well, we could do this or we could do this, what if I say to a client, instead of um, detailing out my solution, I say, well, look, there are a number of possible ways. Can I, Andy, ask you to imagine if we were to do this? Now, don't, listen to the word, imagine, not I'm telling you, here's our solution with benefits. Imagine what you could do if you could do this. Now, by using the word imagine, it's theirs. They're visualizing the shape of the solution. And I mean, to go back as as well to the new environment, the new environment or the current environment is the clients do quite a lot of research. On their needs anyhow. So they've they've got some idea of the shape of the solution before they even get a salesperson.
0: Right. But I think one of the things that, that's key in your book, and you talk about this is, is really when you've used the word insights a lot in the conversation today, but in the book I think you use it differently than the way most people consider insights, in that you know, insights as it's commonly used as what can I sort of tell you sort of about yeah, you know, about you and your business that's sort of in the framework of what I'm selling you, where you talk about your insights process in the book is that it's really about what does the customer want to become, right? And I think this is this is to me is really a, an interesting point and a critical point that I think salespeople spend too much time focused on pain points, which are really things in the past to some degree. And not focusing enough on helping the customer have this vision, as you've just been talking about, of what they want to be and what they want to become. And I think if you get to the point with the customer that you collaborate collaborate on that idea of what this vision is, then that's that to me is the most powerful form of self persuasion.
1: Yeah, and I and I think that the, the other thing that has actually happened when you said what do you want to become, I mean this was you know when I said to you about designing tools. I mean I I have a tool. Called your um, your imagined future. So I I say to say to someone look, you know I say to someone when you before you get too much into the pain point and everything else I said look, you've got to find out where the customer's heading because, um, and I, I have a tool which I call um, look forward reason backwards. Where did I get the tool from? From a couple of guys called Steve Jobs and Andy Groves. And a guy who, who runs Amazon who uses it as well. And so what they do when that when they just start discussing the future, they say, well, where do we need to be in four or five years? Let's look forward. And so what they're actually doing is they're actively imagining the future, aren't they? They're looking at the possibilities. They're considering a world where there may be cloud. They may be considering a, a firm with a, where, where a, a, a phone has become a computer. And then they go, so they go then forward, and then they reason backwards. Now, you think when the salesperson does, what you're actually doing is you're finding out, well, Mr. Um, Buyer, where does what you're wanting to do fit in with where your firm's going? Can you give me an idea of where your firm needs to be in five years? Because we like to make sure that everything what we sell you fits in with where your strategic direction's going, Right. Now you then say, imagine, imagine, and then you 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 walk them backwards, and, and you put, well, if that's what we're talking, what do we need to do first? Let's call that the short-term priorities. If then once we've done that in place, what do we do? Need to do next? Now it's all the customer doing that. To go back to Dan Rome, that's a, a whiteboard discussion, isn't it? Really, mm-hmm. you 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 basically start with the vision, maybe. You see, you start with where do you want to need, and and one of the conversations I find is that every company you go to has such a vastly different time span. You'll go and talk to someone and say, "We've got a new CEO. We have to do what we've well, got. We're in catch up mode. So what we're talking about has to be done in three years. So that's their definition of long term: three years. Mm-hmm. Some people are back to seven and eight years. So. Basically what the salesperson never finds out is they never have an idea of the urgency of the task in the proper way, right? Or or where it fits in. And in a big complex sale, you're never just selling your solution. You're always selling how it fits in with the other strategic goals in the organization. So you know, if
0: you're really trying to do it right in that environment, as you know, a seller in a complex environment is you're not selling yourself at all, right? I mean, if you're creating this vision with the customer, the problem that too many sales reps have and account executives, and so on is is that their vision is constrained by their understanding of what they do today. And as a consequence, they never really get to the finish line with the customer. And so they have to go into these conversations like, a, like I said, a whiteboard talk all of Dan Rome or whatever, where you free yourself of this 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 constraints of this is what our product does right now. Because you're not, you not going to get that I, opportunity to take that journey with the customer.
1: When I mean, I've been inspired by, I've got Dan's book, so I'm, you know, and as you know by the way I've illustrated them and everything else, yeah, and I, yeah. I just call them cave drawings, right? Right. But what, what I actually find and is, is basically what a whiteboard illustration does is, in fact, and you'll see by the, the notion of the diagrams that I've got, I peer I, before I go into a conversation with a client. Or we train people to do it. We will start with almost a detailed whiteboard type thing of what the customer might come back. But what we've found is you're much better to do what Dan Rome does so brilliantly in his book. Is he just captures one or two key points of all the diagrams, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And he lets people's imagination fill the gaps in. Yep. And and what you're doing when you're using this um, cave drawings chapter? And I nearly added a chapter on cave drawings, Andy. Was the additional <laughs> chapter at the end of the book, right? Um, but in homage to Dan, I, d- I didn't, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: but, well, um, yeah. I, I, uh, I feel inadequate every time I draw something. But unfortunately, due yes, to him, but I yeah. still
1: do because of that, right? <laughs> but the interesting thing is, I'm even leaner than Dan. Um. I'm anorexic, as I I, I confess to people and everything else, because what I want to do is I also know that customers are busy and their minds are cluttered. You know, they're trying to multitask in their brains, right? What Mm -hmm. I want to do is try and control the shape of the conversation because my methodology is to help people find their own reasons. Now, at the moment, most customers are lost, they're confused. I mean, you go back to the software buyer at the moment. The software buyer probably doesn't even know what the cloud is. Now, I talk to a lot of people, and I think even people in the industry have just found it's become a descriptor for all sorts of things, Right. right so basically what you've got to do in a conversation is when you lay out this initial map because that's what it is and it's a map that they help create and then they say this is where this is our definition of success this is our Mount everest that we have to climb right mm-hmm. and then you walk them back and you help them and and then by you know three quarters of an hour you've got a, a whiteboard which has maybe got 12 or 14 um, points on it And that's all, right? Um, In fact, quite often what I do, if I haven't got a whiteboard, I actually prefer actually being in cafes because I like the conversation of sitting down with a client over a cup of coffee or Starbucks if it be in the States, right? But um, we don't like Starbucks in this part of the world. (laughs) Um, No. But but, um, I actually find that customers are much more relaxed in a coffee bar and you've got a quiet corner and everything else. And 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 they're not so – they don't rush back to the, the next meeting in the same sense. Right. And um, so my conversation is say to someone, um, is there a local coffee bar and I'll pay for the coffee, you pick the venue sort of stuff, right? Um, and because what you're getting is then someone will start drawing on, on, the, on the sketch pad. And then basically often the final way is they will say – and I've I've done it with myself, um, and and you see that they say, "Can I keep that diagram?"
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And so,
1: you pull it out. Can I keep the diagram?
0: Well, even if you're doing and a whiteboard, you know, everybody, actually, everybody takes a picture of it these days. So,
1: there there is actually a piece of um, Scandinavian software. I should remember the the name. I've, I've got it. Where where in fact you get an app, and the trouble is the stationery is very expensive, and it's gridded squares. And then basically what you do is you draw your diagram and then basically you on your Apple iPhone or you, you just simply um, photograph it right. and then send it back to the client. Now, imagine, look at the difference in what you're doing. You're also changing the way you actually interact with the client. Mm-hmm. This is a person who almost ran, ran a, a consultancy type concession. And to go back to the original things, I found out what I had in common with them. I found out that they spent a lot of time working out where we're going. In fact, because of the way he structured or he structured the questions, I actually think they might even know more about our business than we do. Now, you can't tell a client that. Now, you go back to most salespeople who work in any industry do get to know an awful lot about the common problems that the industry so they walk into the office and say i'll find this pain point and i have the answer for you and i know they're not supposed to do that and they know they're not supposed to do it but it's very tempting but if you use a different set of techniques and let the you know the fun of being a great salesperson now is to say Cheapest! Look at that. They ended up exactly where I wanted them to go. <laughs>
0: right, right. Well, Harry, unfortunately, we are have to stop. That that was a great, yeah. <laughs> great point to end up on. I love that that comment. So, uh, hey, it's been a great conversation, and uh, we could go on forever because I I enjoyed your book quite a bit. The book we, I don't think we ever gave the full title. The name of his book is Zero Resistance: The Science and Secrets of Supercharging Your Sales by Eliminating Buyer Skepticism and Mistrust and a book well worth picking up and reading. So, Harry, how can people connect with you and find out more about what you do?
1: Well, I think the easiest way is to uh, go to my website, which is www.ahaadvantage.com um, We work all over the world, in particular in the States, and um, or to go, come to me at my email, which is harry.mills at ahaadvantage.com.
0: Excellent. Okay. That's ahaadvantage.com or harry.mills at ahaadvantage.com. Well, Harry, again, thank you very much for being on the show. And friends, I want to thank you for spending this time with us today. Please come back. Join me again tomorrow for another great episode of Accelerate. Until then, I really appreciate it. If you get a chance, go to iTunes and leave a review for this podcast. We really want to hear from you. And uh, we'll talk to you again tomorrow. So until then, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.